immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode seven of Turn on the Light. I am your host, Louise, and thank you for coming back and listening to me waffle on a little bit more. Um, So yeah, usually before I introduce the species, I uh, give a bit of good news from the natural world from the past couple of weeks that has sort of piqued my interest and that I've wanted to share. Um, This week I am sharing with you that this weekend is the City Nature Challenge. Um, This involves cities from all around the UK. You don't have to live in these cities either. Um, You can be from anywhere, but anyway, um, looking at the biodiversity in city areas in urban areas and the way that you can help out and do just that is by downloading an app called the iNaturalist app um, and you just record your observations in there it's really really clever um, if you take a picture of something and you have no idea what it is you can upload it and that app will give you suggestions as to what that species is um, so it's a really exciting thing that anyone can get involved in from their back garden on your daily walk out of your window something to keep you occupied and connected with nature even during these lockdown times. Um, Now, I know that a lot of people will perhaps not listen to this episode as it's released, um, but you have until midnight on Monday the 27th um, to record your observations. Um, And just because it's the City Nature Challenge this particular weekend doesn't mean that you can't upload your observations to the iNaturalist app at any other point. Um, It's really fun, it's really interactive, Um, scientists can comment on your observations suggest what species they think it is um, and all the data goes towards knowing more about what wildlife we have um, all around us and that's always only a good thing Um, so yeah get involved with that that's pretty pretty cool Um, yeah I think I I do mention it in a few interviews um, with other people as well Um, but just because I happen to be recording those interviews at the time that the city nature challenge was happening but again as I say you know recording the wildlife that you see out and about in your daily life is is never a bad thing so if I'm plugging it a bit too much souls you're just gonna have to uh, put up with that um yeah and the other bit of news that I wanted to share with you and talk about is actually not good news it's incredibly incredibly sad news um but I wanted to draw attention to it um in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there was an attack um, from about 60 militiamen who ambushed a convoy of civilians that was being protected by rangers of Varunga National Park. And incredibly sadly, at least 12 rangers have been killed by these suspected members of a Rwandan rebel group. Now, as you know, from the first episode of the podcast that I did, these Varunga rangers they give up their entire lives and they're devoted to protecting the last remaining members of the mountain gorilla population out there. Um, and for them to have been killed in, in such a callous, heartless, horrible way is just incredibly upsetting. And so even though that's sad news and the vibe of this podcast is to be positive, we can't, I couldn't let that pass without drawing people's attention to it and just having a little moment of silence and and sort of a little moment of respect for what these rangers did with their lives. Okay, you might have even been able to hear a little bit of birdsong in the background there um, for those few moments. Um... Okay, so it is time to reveal the species in the spotlight this week. Um, And if any of you follow the Instagram, follow me on social media, um, you will have seen that I put up a little post with a little clue um, as to who this might be. Um, A fabulous little winged fellow. Um, And it is, of course, the pink pigeon. Okay, so for this species story, we go back to the island of Mauritius off the southeast coast of Africa, um, an area of immense biodiversity, um, and as we all know, island ecology is very, very interesting. Um, and that is where this species of pigeon lives. 
So the pink pigeon is a species of pigeon in the Columbidae family and is endemic to Mauritius. Um, its Latin name is Nessionus Mayeri. Um, I hope I said that right. Soz, if not, please correct me. Um, now these little guys, they are, as the name would suggest, pink in colour. So their body is this beautiful candy floss pink colour. Um, and they have a darker pink, or some may say red, ring around its eye. Um, and pink feet. Um, its wings are a dark brown colour and it has a rust-coloured tail. Um, so it looks very stylish. Um, sort of, you know, those dusky, lovely tones that you see in fashionable interiors. The pink fluffy pillows, maybe a rust-coloured sofa. Just beautiful. Just very, very stylish guy. Um its size it's it's similar in size to your regular feral pigeon that you'll see out and about in the streets but perhaps a little bit a little bit bigger um and these guys are herbivorous ground feeding birds turning over leaf litter to find food which consists of buds flowers leaves shoots and seeds now this ground feeding behavior may have actually been a factor that led to the numbers plummeting when humans arrived in Mauritius in the 1600s um, now, we all are aware of, of the poor, ill-fated dodo, um, who was actually a species of pigeon. Um, so, unlike their dodo cousins, they were not actually hunted for their meat. Um, in fact, their flesh is quite toxic and can induce stomach cramps and vomiting. Um, so, people quickly learned to leave them alone and not use them for food. But if humans weren't hunting them, they did bring other things rather than weapons and their appetites with them to Mauritius. Uh, so they did introduce non-native predators to the island that the pigeons they hadn't encountered before. They had no strategies to escape. Um, these predators included rats, cats, mongoose and crab-eating macaques. Um, in fact, the introduction of cats and rats... Um, caused another species of pigeon, the reunion pigeon, to go extinct on the neighbouring reunion island. Um, so this and the loss of the dodo actually make the pink pigeon the last native pigeon species in the whole Mascarene archipelago. archipelago sorry. So they are an incredibly important um, species to conserve. So humans also decimated pink pigeon's habitat, clearing away lush forests to make way for tea and sugarcane plantations. In fact, today, Mauritius only has 2% of its natural forest remaining. Additionally, humans brought with them non-native birds, as well as predators, which brought with them uh, disease. Um, they brought with them a nasty pathogen, which proved near fatal for the pink pigeons. It's called Trichomonasus gallinae, and it kills over 50% of pink pigeon squabs. Uh, squab is just their young. So these guys were really getting it from all sides, a plethora of factors um, that were sort of leading them down the path of extinction. And in addition to all of those factors, they also experienced inbreeding depression as a result of their population having reached such low levels. So the population was really low, which meant between individuals, there wasn't a large amount of genetic diversity between them. And this basically means that there's not enough differences within the gene pools of a population to be able to adapt to changes in their environment. So, for example, you know, they're ground dwelling birds, ground feeding birds, um, introduced predators come along. And if they have high genetic diversity, then the fast birds will get away and the fast birds can then breed those fast genes into their offspring um, and the slow ones get eaten. Um, but if there's not that diversity between the fast and slow genes, then then you, you don't have that ability to adapt to these things. So, whilst numbers have no doubt been decreasing since humans arrived back in the 1600s, it was actually more recently in the 1970s that they saw a real population crash, leaving a single population of 20 birds left in an area that's now known cutely as Pigeonwood. This number of 20 decreased to just 12 in 1986 and it reached an all-time low of nine birds in 1990. So how did they bounce back? I hear you say. So reintroducing the Mauritian Wildlife Foundation and Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, who if you've listened to previous episodes you'll know that both of these organisations were also instrumental in the return of the Mauritius Kestrel. So these organisations 
along with other partners and government in Mauritius, set up an intensive conservation programme back in 1976, which was when the population was at around 20 birds. So they captured these remaining birds and started a captive breeding programme on Mauritius, on the island itself. The birds were intensively managed, and the first reintroductions occurred in 1987. So, how, you ask, did the population plummet to just nine individuals in 1990? if this conservation project was already set up. I will tell you. So, this crash was mostly caused by feral cat predation, um, which is a problem, as we know, um, for birds in Western countries as well. Cats will predate upon them. And obviously, for an already vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable population, teetering on the edge of extinction, this was a disaster. So, in a little drum roll... I will introduce once again Professor Carl Jones. Now, he was um, the person who was leading the Mauritius Kestrel breeding programs and had these really amazing innovative ideas that hadn't really been sort of used and trialed in captive breeding bird programs before. So he used those same innovative captive breeding strategies that he implemented for the Mauritius Kestrel. Um, for example, things like cross-fostering. So cross-fostering is where the young or the eggs are taken from the nests of the pink pigeons so that the pink pigeon parents can breed again quickly. Um, and they were fostered with Barbary doves. So this and the close monitoring of the reintroduced individuals enabled the pink pigeon to recover and reach its current population level. So these innovative techniques did work and did bring those guys back from a number of nine individuals um, bolstering up the population which is what i hear you cry what are their population numbers now well in the year 2000 the pink pigeon was downgraded from critically endangered to endangered on the iucn red list which as we know again from previous episodes is the comprehensive data set telling us the status of a species in the wild um, from critically endangered up to least concern so these guys, they were critically endangered, then to endangered, and most recently in 2018, they were further downgraded to vulnerable. And now there are nine subpopulations existing over the islands of Mauritius, six in the Black River Gorges National Park, close to the original site of Pigeonwood, one on the predator-free island of Isle Orcs of Grits, and two more on private land at Fernie in East Mauritius, and at Chamorel Ebony Forest in southwest Mauritius. As I touched on earlier, maintaining genetic diversity in such low populations um, of birds is, is a difficult task, so dispersal between all of these sites when the birds are reintroduced from the captive breeding programme, they are dispersed um, between all of these different sites um, to help maintain genetic diversity. So there are now... 470 wild pink pigeons at these sites. 470, from 9 to 470. Now, I think Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, on their website, they say that they have increased the population of the pink pigeon from the start of the breeding programme to now. It's been increased by 167%. Which is mad. 100% is 100%, right? Like, you can't get more than that. But no, 167% increase in these species numbers which is amazing stuff and i want to take a moment here to appreciate the 30 years 30 plus years of grueling devotion to these birds conservation is tackling numerous threats as i said at the beginning there's so many um threats to these birds um from sort of all angles um and these conservationists trying every possible strategy to try and bring these birds back from the brink also, again, I want to appreciate, as with most other stories that I've told, the work is by no means over. Um, the Mauritius Wildlife Foundation and our Wildlife Conservation Trust continue to work hard to manage and conserve the remaining birds with a three-pronged approach. And now I will go into that three-pronged approach. So you've got monitoring of these birds. Each bird is ringed with a unique metal ID band and unique plastic colour combo, so they're easily identified and individual birds are easily followed once they've been reintroduced into the wild. And nests are also regularly checked um, and findings documented. 
from these two things, large data sets now exist, meaning that managing strategies is now more effective and we now know more on the factors affecting their survival and we also know more about their biology and their behaviour. Next factor, next prong of the approach is food supplementation. So as mentioned, pink pigeon habitat is so degraded, so it's difficult for them to be able to find enough food to be able to sustain themselves. So... Uh, conservationists provide food supplements, um, including wheat and maize, at the field sites where the populations exist. Um, and these supplements are placed on special feeders, so other species can't get to it, so it's exclusively for the pink pigeons. And finally, you've got predator control. As a major limiting factor for these birds' survival uh, is the presence of predators, lots of effort goes into removing and controlling the predators that pose a threat to their survival. Now, what's happening right now um, is very exciting stuff. So work is going on, termed as a genetic rescue mission. So in a nutshell, captive populations of pink pigeons have been shown to have genetic variations that are no longer found in the wild populations. So, where captive populations exist in the world, in Europe, in places such as Jersey Zoo, they're being repatriated and released in Mauritius to reinforce the populations at field sites. So this will hopefully reintroduce this diversity to the wild populations that they have somehow lost over the years from going to such small numbers. And this will increase disease resistance and it will increase general genetic diversity overall. Um, and the exciting thing is there is evidence of this working in other animals such as the Florida panther, the Swedish adder and the South Island robin. Um, actually, it's sort of like in general, there is very few examples of this sort of genetic rescue mission happening. There's around 30 examples of scientists doing this across invertebrates, plants and vertebrates. So watch this space. It's really exciting stuff happening. Um, and, you know, research has gone into it to say that there's scientists were wary of using these techniques um, to begin with, because obviously if it's not been used before, you don't know what the negative implications might be. Um, but from research so far, 94% of, of the work that's gone on has been positive and positive um, impacts have been seen. Um, and there's no reason to think that this genetic rescue mission technique um, poses any threats. So, I've actually got a recent good news story for you here in the main body of things, which is actually related to this genetic rescue mission idea. So, let me introduce to you Eureka the Pink Pigeon. Eureka is the first successful pink pigeon fledgling born in Mauritius on the 29th of February 2020, so very, very recently, whose parents are a female born in Mauritius and a male born in Jersey, Channel Islands, UK. So it all started on the 6th of September 2019 when three male pink pigeons were repatriated back to Mauritius from Dara Wildlife Conservation Trust in Jersey. So the offspring of the birds sent to Jersey some 40 years ago, their repatriation aims to enrich the genetic, genetic diversity of the species on Mauritius. So that's what they have done. They have bred with a female born in Mauritius and a male born in Jersey, and they're increasing that genetic diversity. And Eureka is the first fledgling born of that kind, hence the name Eureka. So that was very, very, very recent news, as I said, the 29th of February 2020. So even though this conservation efforts have been going on for over 30 years, it's still developing. It's still growing and we are still seeing amazing continued amazing results and hopefully that will only increase as, as the years go on and as i said our biological and behavioral knowledge of these of these birds is constantly improving and what we can do well what we have done in saving the pink pigeon these techniques can be used to save other threatened pigeon species worldwide and i don't know about you but that makes my heart swell um that if you know if something can be successful in one area and that science can be used and implemented in other places then this success goes beyond the borders of mauritius
It's now time for your fun pink pigeon facts. Fact number one, they are monogamous and they mate for life, like many bird species, but it always makes me coo. <laughs> coo, pigeon. <laughs> so the male courts the female with a step and bow display. Step and bow, like swish and flick, step and bow. And this, for a little bit of gender equality here, the males will incubate the eggs in the daytime and females at nighttime. What a lovely split in the workload there. Now, as I mentioned earlier, these guys are roughly a similar size to feral pigeons, but actually they're said to be the largest of all pigeon and all dove species. So there you go. A little bit more about the pink pigeon. Now, let me introduce today's special guest. Today we welcome Louise Whale. Originally from Jersey in the Channel Islands, she holds a Bachelor of Science in Zoology and has a wealth of volunteering experience across Africa and has undertaken voluntary work and an internship with the one, the only, Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust. Which, for anyone who has listened to previous episodes and obviously having just listened to the story of the Pink Pigeon, know that I adore this place and that Gerald Durrell is a bit of a hero. Louise is currently undertaking a Master's in Global Biodiversity Conservation. So let's chat to her about her experiences. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, Louise. How are you, good? How are you doing? I'm, I'm not too bad, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good. On um, day about 5,062 of, um, of isolation, but, you know, it's going okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I suppose are you, you're UK-based, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm London. London-based, in the thick of it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah, you've really got quite tight restrictions then. <laughs> we have, yeah. It's a, bit, it's a bit strange. It's 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 nice, kind of, to see London is as a bit of a ghost town, but definitely odd. <laughs> um, yeah. how, how Jersey, how's it looking over there? Um, we're not in lockdown. Um, we have our own government. We have our own rules. But I mean, the cases have doubled this week. So oh, um, wow. I'm thinking, I'm thinking they will at some point, or at least almost hoping they will. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was hoping in London, you know, just make people do something instead of suggesting it and then maybe it, it'll work. Because they were like, oh, you know, like, we're not going to do it. It's not like London. We don't have the underground system. We don't have people, um, but their cases have still doubled. So, you know, like, it's, whatever's happening isn't working still, so. Yeah, exactly. Shut it down. But... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure everybody's sort of in the same boat as us <laughs> at the moment, yeah. world over. Mentioning Jersey, um, I wanted to go in and, and talk about Jersey first and foremost, because I absolutely, I'm so jealous that you get to, to live there for sort of the majority of, of your time <laughs> um, at the moment. Um, I lived there for about three, four months uh, in, in 2004 when I did my undergrad dissertation and I just fell in love with the island um, and island ecology itself is, you know, super interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So I was, yeah, I just wanted to ask you sort of what it was like growing up in Jersey and, and is that maybe what led you down a conservation career path? Um, yeah, so growing up here is definitely sort of a unique experience, um, mainly for the fact that the island is obviously only nine by five miles or 15 about 15 by eight kilometers. Um, so obviously it makes it really kind of tightly packed and um, kind of a tightly packed community and kind of where everyone kind of knows each other and knows each other's business. So it's really kind of <laughs> unique in that sense. Um, and of course yeah. we're lucky in many ways because obviously it does mean that we're close to the sea, we're close to nature, everything's kind of close. So it's pretty accessible. Um, and yeah, I definitely say I've drawn inspiration from here. I love kind of being outside, being in the best beaches in Europe, I believe. Um, and yeah. yeah, I believe. And there are kind of many unique species as well here, um, but you probably don't find elsewhere, obviously island nature. Um, so for example, you've got like the Jersey toad. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, um, as you mentioned, it's obviously the headquarters to Daryl Wildlife Conservation Trust. Um, and they, I've always loved animals. Um, that's always I've always had pets growing up. Um, always loved animals, so that's kind of why when I was sixteen, I decided to join Daryl to become a teenage volunteer. And I think this is mm-hmm. definitely where. I personally grew my passion for zoology and this led me to choosing to study at university. Um, I went to Exeter based in Cornwall and yeah I think Doral kind of really sped along my um, passion really. Yeah definitely I mean how could it not really (laughs) I think um, yeah it's it's an incredible place Um, and you touched on there that Jersey has um, like its own unique species and I know of one that um, Jersey has its own sort of conservation success story for example um, the red-billed chough um, am I saying that right chough cough yeah chough, chough. <laughs> um, chough yeah um, which was reintroduced uh, to Jersey's coastlines which National Trust Jersey had a large part of which I believe you also volunteered for um, is that right yes that's correct yeah um, could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences with them um and with the jersey biodiversity center um as well and of course with durrell <laughs> yeah um quite a few in there yeah that's the birds on edge project you're talking about and that's kind of a joint collaboration mm-hmm. between durrell national trust for jersey and the government so yeah there are many red bill chuffs flying around the north coast of jersey which is lovely i've seen them myself um so yeah i've obviously volunteered for very various projects around the island trying to help where I can but the National Trust for Jersey my involvement was a GIS mapping project so they wanted to move away from kind of paper records of their land they owned and all the features in their land and they wanted something more digital so my involvement was I got to go around the land they owned um, with a handheld GPS and basically kind of map the footpaths, any features like benches. So they had all these electronic records. Um, so that was basically my involvement. I kind of mapped their land. Um, that sounds like a nice one to have. <laughs> yeah, it was, quite, it was quite nice, to be honest. Um, yeah, and I got to kind of learn very basic GIS, which is obviously a good skill. Um, yeah, yeah. If um, sort of touching on different software and stuff, I know a lot of people get really intimidated when people start talking about software. Um, but with your experience with GIS, is it fairly? Is it user friendly? Is it easy enough to learn? Would you have any tips for people just sort of starting to use it? <laughs> um. I'll be honest, it's probably, it was, it was definitely a challenging, it definitely had um, it challenging moments. I'm also doing more of it as part of my master's now. Um, so mm-hmm. it is, it is, I'd say a tricky skill to learn. However, it's a very, at the moment, sought after skill. So it is worth learning. Um, I'm very lucky that I've had some online tutorials provided by my master's. Um, and that's really helped Um, but obviously if you're not doing uh, a master's I know that there are tutorials available online to help yourself and teach so you can learn it yourself Um, and especially yeah Um, so you obviously I I personally use QGIS um, which is open source which obviously means that it's kind of run by volunteers and they're kind of keeping on top and teaching people yeah how to use it so it is hard but there's definitely the help out there if it's something you want to learn yeah well that's really handy to know and I, yeah. I appreciate the honesty yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry so I interrupted you there talking about your volunteering I just got a bit carried away with GIS <laughs> but please do continue <laughs> yeah no worries um and obviously I started Durrell as a teenage volunteer and I mainly helped out in the education department, teaching workshops to children, um, kind of at the time they had animals like corn snakes and stuff used for handling, which I kind of helped take care of. And I also then helped out weekly in the mammals department 
and I got to help the bears, Chewy and Bahia, um, who yeah. are very close to my heart, the Andean bears. Um, and then I kind of progressed and in my summer of my first year at university, I took a student placement in the bird department, um, mm-hmm. which, was, which was very nice. It was hard work, but it was pretty rewarding. And I believe the theme is pink pigeons. So I obviously got to work with pink pigeons mm-hmm. there, which was lovely. Yes, yes, the pink pigeon is the species in the spotlight for this episode, absolutely. Um, yeah. So what was your sort of level of involvement with those guys? Um, yeah, just did you want to tell us about them and, and what they're like as a, as a species and, you know, their personalities, any fun stories, stuff like that? Um, yeah, just sort of the interactions you had with them. Yeah, um, they were quite, they were quite shy and flighty, I would say, um, from my experience. Um, um, yeah, I'd say they were quite flighty and and quite quite scared, but they were um they were fun and it was quite it was really fun to kind of watch them grow up from kind of being like the really like grey kind of like <laughs> dull squabs and then kind of seeing them become like these like pink birds when they got older and when they kind of got released around the park. Um, yeah, my um, main involvement with them was helping with the kind of husbandry tasks, tasks so kind of cleaning them out and um, feeding them because um, they are obviously captive bred at Jersey mm-hmm. Zoo and then they kind of go on to be released, um, I believe, in Mauritius um, or they kind of stay on and get help with some more breeding at Jersey Zoo and I believe they're making a pretty good recovery um, which is mm, nice. Yes yeah. yeah absolutely and Dar- Darrell have been sort of instrumental in so many species recovery programs haven't they and their captive breeding efforts are incredible um, they're yeah. a bit of a leading light and as Gerald Durrell said it's sort of the little brown jobs um, that he liked to sort of go out and and um help save which for listeners who don't know what he meant by that he meant he didn't want the big charismatic species that sort of everyone knows about and everybody's working to save he wanted the little kind of forgotten about guys um so they're the kind of guys you'll find at at jersey zoo um and yeah i mean did you have i mean were speaking about the andean bears there would you say they were your favorite species or did you did you not have a favorite do you not want to say a favorite (laughs) i'm Believe it or not, it's something I get asked as someone whose background's in zoology. What's your favourite animal? And I, I'm really not someone that's kind of tied to them. I kind of love most animals, especially the ones that you kind of probably don't hear about as much. But I guess I do have a personal connection to the Andean bears, I'd say. Especially, you know, mm-hmm. seeing them weekly. And they do have quite funny kind of personalities during Bahia. Um, so I would say I have that connection to them and perhaps any other species I've worked at but I'm I'm not someone that holds favorites (laughs) yeah (laughs) can't have a favorite child (laughs) no it's too hard (laughs) and did you um I have to ask about the IIs because they were the they were my study species for my dissertation um I was studying the um the stereotypical behavior in the captive IIs at at Doral um and just there's a quick explanation for anyone who doesn't know. Um, stereotypical behaviour is a repetitive, seemingly functionless behaviour. Um, so like walking in circles or rocking or somersaults like one of the IIs happened to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I was there, it was Juliet, Juliet, Zaza, Visago and Patrice. They were, the, they were the IIs that were there when I was there. I didn't know if you had ever, if you ever worked with them or came across them at all. Um, I've definitely come across them. Um, I obviously used to visit the park quite yeah. a lot. Um, I don't personally know those IIs, I'm afraid, but um, they definitely have a definitely have a good life in there, I believe. They do, they're, yeah, they're wonderful creatures. They will always <laughs> have a little soft spot in my heart. <laughs> they were great. Um, so I think, yeah, um, now, if it's all right, well, let's move on and talk about Africa. Um, yeah. So am I right in thinking that you first went over to the continent with Operation Wallacea? Um, I actually first went as a guest in 2013 to Tanzania and Kenya 
um uh-huh. I just went as a tourist and mm-hmm. I was 16 at the time I just remember there was just something that really kind of I don't know it just I kind of just really kind of fell in love um I just felt really in my element even back then um just kind of that unique experience of kind of being sort of really in the middle of nowhere which you don't quite get anywhere else and kind of just sitting there and watching giraffes move by um there's just something about it I really loved I then went back to I went to South Africa with Opal in 2018 mm-hmm. and that's when I got to work in the Cape Floristic region um which is the smallest of the six floristic uh, floristic regions in the world and that's pretty cool and that was um yeah I just kind of fell in love all over again really yeah <laughs> and you've been back a few times haven't you yes I also went back again um kind of 2018 that was when I kind of graduated from my degree um after that I didn't really have any plans didn't really know what to do so I thought why not go back no better way to spend your time than doing um doing something you love in places you love so yes I did get to go back um in 2019 and I did various projects around South Africa and Malawi um which was yeah I was really fortunate and it was really yeah it was great yeah I think um from from the documents you sent me you know um worked as an endangered species monitoring volunteer um, and as a research assistant with Africa Wild Trails. Um, And what really interested me um, about the information on those was the surveying techniques that you used, um, like camera trapping and radio telemetry. Um, And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, because I know maybe people may have heard camera trapping sort of the phrase sort of thrown around but doesn't don't really know what it involves um and the same with radio telemetry um would you be able to sort of tell us a little bit about how you conducted those surveys and what equipment and stuff you used because I find that really really interesting um yeah sure so camera trapping I've just done a presentation on this for my master's so I've kind of hopefully got to learn um a little bit more about it but um camera trapping so it's basically if you don't know a kind of camera that's remotely triggered. So it detects a change in temperature and motion within a range in front of it. And this triggers the camera to take a picture or start recording a film. And this is a really useful technique, particularly for large mammal abundance, um, as you can kind of get an idea of perhaps more cryptic species that you might not see when you're walking around. Um, So for example, leopards are quite, they're quite secret. um, And you kind of get an idea of sort of um, um, how many of them might be in your area, um, especially if you combine this with um, capture recapture techniques. So um, I know for ones with, um, you can individually identify um, such as leopards with their spots um, you can kind of look at how many you capture in each um, sort of night you sample um, and then you can use this to put it and do some magic statistics which I um, statistics is not my strong point but somehow you then use that to get an <laughs> estimate of maybe how many you have in your area and that's obviously very useful for informing conservation management Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that is not my strong point either. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so did you did you get a lot of leopards? Um, did you manage to capture a lot a lot of leopards, or what was what was the most interesting species that you got um, images of? Um, we did get a couple of leopards. Um, yeah, I think we got a couple, not um, a huge amount. Um, we did actually capture some some black rhinos which obviously quite effective as well so it's good to see that they are still Uh around in the areas as well Um, amazing uh, and yeah what does um because i i have no idea about radio telemetry and what sort of that involves um yeah just sort of the images of yourself with a holding up a piece of equipment into the air and that 
sort of where my knowledge ends on that one. <laughs> yeah, so telemetry is kind of using sort of radio signals to then detect where an animal is. So this is useful if you're trying to track a particular individual. Um, so usually this will involve darting and collaring an animal to give it a collar that basically emits a a radio signal at a particular frequency and then the involvement of the pole is that you use its pole to kind of pick up this signal that you find um so if you want to kind of keep an eye on so mainly i was involved with doing this with wild dogs so sometimes we were keeping an eye on this pack and seeing how they were doing in the reserve so you'd kind of hold up this pole and you'd kind of wave it around waiting to hear kind of a blip noise um and if you heard it depending you could then see depending on how strong so if the um the animal's close it'd be quite a strong noise or if it was far away it'd be quite a faint noise and you'd get it you kind of would be able to narrow it down to the direction it's in you then could go find the animal and kind of see how they're doing basically um so it's mm -hmm. pretty useful for that definitely um, now at the moment obviously you're sort of most of the way through um, your master's in global biodiversity conservation um, and obviously that's quite global is well, very very broad in the places that you could sort of go with it um, yeah. so thinking ahead past all this uncertain sort of mire that we're in at the moment um, thinking ahead a couple of years time I mean do you see yourself back in Africa or are there other places that are sort of tugging at your heartstrings that you want to, to go and explore? Um, I, I do love Africa and I of course will return to go and see more. I definitely wouldn't see myself working there in the long run for a variety of reasons. Uh, mainly because I think volunteering abroad and actually living somewhere are completely different, um, mm -hmm. things to be honest. Um, I'm quite, I'm quite open-minded about what's next for me. Um, but I think anything long term will be UK or Channel Islands based. Um, definitely, I think Jersey, lots of people are surprised to say, I think it's a good place to start your career because of the nature of it being a small island and everyone knowing each other. It's quite, it's quite good to make connections there, I'd say. Mm. People know your name quite easily. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm always open-minded about what's next. Um, I think, yeah, I definitely would love to go on another adventure somewhere else, try something completely new at some point. Um, would love to go, for example, visit jungle again. I love that experience. Just, I want to keep my mind open and open to adventures, yeah. really. Yeah, I think that's the best way to be, isn't it? And then, like, like you say, sort of sticking to more local, sort of your own native grounds as well. Like, it allows, you know, local populations who live in Africa who want to sort of grow up and become a ranger or get involved in conservation work. It sort of leaves room for local people to to come in and fill those spaces as well, which is really cool. Um, yeah, that's definitely a huge reason behind it as well. As well as mm -hmm. I feel those jobs should be left with those people yeah they they that's their land isn't it they know they know it best um yeah, which reminds me yeah yeah definitely yeah. um so with your masters i don't know sort of how much you can say on it at the moment but um sort of what what was sort of your main studies through the masters did you are you writing have you written a thesis for it um is there sort of like a main research project that you're doing for it or have done um, we will see where this goes because obviously it's quite uncertain. Teaching is being really mm -hmm. rearranged at the moment. Um, but I will tell you about the thesis I was planning to do, and I'm really hoping I still will be able to do it. Um, although I don't have all the details on it yet, but I'm hoping to do something completely different. So my supervisor, Dave Goulson, owns a meadow in France, and he oh. kind of just yeah it's really he just kind Lovely. of owns this piece of land which he kind of just experiments with um from what I gather so I'm going to hopefully do some kind of floral surveys in there um and I'm also hopefully gonna do some um 
carbon soil surveys and look at earthworm abundance. Um, obviously, that won't be um, perhaps anytime soon, but I'm really hoping I can still go out there and do this because it's just something very new to me and I'd be really interested in it. That sounds so nice. <laughs> that sounds absolutely wonderful. Oh, well, I've got everything. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Summer wild. Absolutely me. <laughs> God, oh, everything is crossed for you that I hope that, you know, all of this virus stuff passes over and you can get to go out there in, you know, like the height of August when it's gorgeous weather and just, oh, yeah, <laughs> stuff flowers and the earthworms and that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, so my sort of last serious question for you. <laughs> um, do you have sort of any words of wisdom for anyone uh, just starting out on their own conservation journey, be that it making it a career or just getting more involved in conservation, whatever age or, or life stage they're at? Because um, obviously you've done a lot of volunteering um, and a lot of studying and sort of mm -hmm. been able to mesh the two together really well. Um, so yeah, I wondered if you had any, any advice for someone just starting out. Um, definitely, mm -hmm. yeah. I think probably my biggest advice and probably something I would have liked to have heard perhaps last year during one of my low points is that just don't necessarily worry about other people and their progress. Um, yeah, my gap year was a really hard time for me because I kind of went back to working in customer services mm -hmm. and I felt like I'd taken sort of five steps back and it was really difficult to then see kind of other people out in the field or doing their masters, doing what they wanted to do, living the dream on the surface. But um, I think, yeah, just kind of just remembering to kind of take it at your own pace and not worrying about that. You know, if you keep going in whatever capacity um, you can, even if it, that's the dreaded V volunteering word, um, <laughs> we probably all get a bit fed up with sometimes. But that is sometimes the best way to kind of keep going and keep building on your skills. Um, and that is really still valuable and contributing to so much still. So, um, yeah, just keep going. Surround yourself with good people, um, which is definitely what I managed to do. And it kind of helped me get in a better place and feel more confident about myself and helped me progress to do my master's, which I'm really grateful for. Oh, oh that's really lovely. Really, really good words. I think we've all been there when we've maybe had to sort of take a step back into a job that's not perhaps ideal or the one we'd love to be doing. But, you know, as you're saying, you're still moving forward with whatever you're doing, whether that be volunteering, you know, those incremental tiny little steps forward are still steps forward. And, and I think that's really nice that you said from the sort of the other perspective as well, like maybe people get too bogged down thinking about, oh, I'm volunteering, I'm not being paid for my skills and my work's not being valued, et cetera. But then from the other side, as you said, but it's still making a difference to the wildlife that you're helping. It's still making a difference to the bigger picture, um, which I think is really lovely and, and really something for people to remember. So thank you very much for that. That was great. <laughs> no problem. Okay, so now the two final questions I have for you are the two silly questions that I have to ask every single guest. Um, and I do give guests these questions in advance just to give them a little bit of thinking time. <laughs> um, yeah. So the first one is, what animal adaptation would you have and why? Um, I would definitely love to have flight. Um, I don't know, I just see birds around all the time and I'm just like, I just want to kind of see the world from that perspective um, and also just be able to fly places without the whole carbon emissions as well would be great. I'd, I'd, I'd love it. I don't think there could be much better things than just flying. That would definitely be an, an adaptation <laughs> I would love to have. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a popular one. <laughs> and <Yeah>. the <laughs> final question I have for you is who would play you in a movie of your life? Um, I actually don't watch a lot of TV and movies, but I'm probably going to say Natalie Portman just because of her environmental and animal welfare efforts. Seems like a good, good way to go. Definitely. That's also a popular theme amongst all of my guests. Like they're thinking about who aligns with my values and who reflects what I believe. And yeah, yeah. that's really lovely. Brilliant. 
Oh, well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, if it's okay with you, I'll pop your Instagram handle into the show notes and then people can follow your journey um, online. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been no. fun talking. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm always happy to speak to new people. And if, for people who don't know, this is actually the first time that Louise and I have spoken. So <laughs> yeah, this has been <laughs> as much fun for me as it has been for people listening. <laughs> um, so thank you so, so much. And um, yeah, if you follow her Instagram, then you'll get amazing, wonderful images of your continuing work in the field. And also, I have to mention this, a little some story gems um like the other day when uh, i saw you reading out a letter from your 12 year old self to your future self <laughs> yes um hopefully yeah hopefully i'll um especially during this period um hopefully i'll try my best to keep people entertained with thoughts from younger me and perhaps some um, you know pictures of me as animals just to show but that's always been me <laughs> <laughs> amazing see quality content there people so go and follow that um yeah so i think i think that's it um thank you yeah. so so much it's been yeah, so much you. fun <laughs> yes yeah, okay good. brilliant well stay safe and take care of yourself thank you too yeah okay i'll uh, i'll catch you on the flip side <laughs> awesome speak soon bye-bye Thank you all so much once again for listening to me waffle. Um, yeah, as as always, the Instagram is there, turn on the light pod. Um, you can email me at turnonthelightpod at gmail.com for any reason, any questions, any comments, any corrections, um, etc. Um, I am also on Twitter at Saving Species. Um, yeah, and I hope you are all staying safe, staying sane, trying to enjoy the sunshine um, and trying to connect with nature still in some way. Okay, until next time, guys. Thanks. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. Mm-hmm.